We live by numbers. We track and count and measure everything. And sometimes we think the only numbers that really matter are the big ones. But it's the single digits that make the difference. The Bible says that heaven rejoices with the number one. Yeah, heaven rejoices each time even one person comes to know Jesus. We pastors dream about big numbers, and we should. But a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker. One friend, one family member, one coworker, one person at a time. We want to see God move in our nation like we have never seen before. But it all starts with one. I've got my one, and now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? That little video is from J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So you can say that J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, spoke to First Baptist Church, Walnut Ridge today. How about that? But he's not the one that's so important. The message that he shared is what's important. And you saw the number that he emphasized. What was it? One. In fact, I could probably argue and win the argument that one is perhaps the most significant and even the biggest number in the Bible. I believe that it is. In fact, to emphasize this point a little bit further, I'm going to take you to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, we'll look at verses 40 through 42. And we're just going to talk about one guy named Andrew. And his journey, becoming a Christ follower and leading, pointing others to Christ. Andrew. He's kind of uh, one of those guys on the outskirts of the story, but still kind of in the middle of it. You know those movies that you watch, and there's characters in the movie, and they're not the main actors or actresses. But they're not just in the background as nobodies. They're kind of in that hazy in-between area. And you know those, uh, those guys that, that play on the bench for your favorite baseball team? That, like they're not the one, two, or three hitters in the lineup. But they're like that super utility guy. Or that extra outfielder when you just need a power bat in the late innings of a game. Or if, if basketball is more your flavor, Josh isn't here, is he, Rachel? Man, i got to pick on Josh. He's not even here. Coach Austin from Williams basketball team. But if basketball is more your flavor like Coach Austin, he's kind of like your sixth man off the bench, right? you got five starters out there, and they work and they hustle, but it's really that extra person over there on the sidelines that gets thrown into the game that keeps things going and becomes a difference maker. Andrew's like one of those guys. He's probably not going to have the best number slapped on his jersey. He's not going to be billed as the highest payrolled actor on the set. But nevertheless, he saw the value in the number one. In fact, in John chapter 1 verse 40, we're introduced to Andrew. It says in John chapter 1 verse 40, one of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
Wouldn't you love to be known as so-and-so's brother, so-and-so's daughter, so-and-so's friend? This is how Andrew's known throughout the New Testament most of the time. That's Peter's brother. And people go, oh, that's, that's who you're talking about. Yeah, Andrew. Well, here's what happened after Andrew decided to follow Jesus. Verse 41. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Messiah was a Hebrew word. Christ was a Greek word. They both mean the anointed one of God. Andrew goes to Peter and says, We found him, the one. Verse 42 says this. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, I would guess that if this were a Sunday school class, and I was your Sunday school teacher, and I just read to you those few verses, and I said, Who's this story about? you would probably say Jesus and Peter, right? But Andrew is a pretty important character in the story. Peter's brother Andrew is the least known of the four disciples that are kind of in Jesus' inner circle. I mean, Jesus always ministered to the crowds and to the masses, but he called 12 especially aside to follow him. And amongst that group of 12, he... He really had a few that he spends more time with. And it's not because he doesn't like the others. It's just that he had a special connection with a group of them and he spent time with them. In fact, you'll see their names listed throughout the gospel accounts and they usually occur in this order. Peter, James, and John. Peter's the most well-known. He's also the most outspoken. But then attached to Peter and attached to that group of three at times is this name, Andrew. He's the least known of those four in that inner circle. He's ordinarily left very much in the background. And we will learn too this morning that he was used by our Lord as one who touched thousands of people's lives. Homer Lindsay referred to Andrew as the inviter or the bringer, or the introducer. I mean, just stop and think about this for a moment, the impact that Andrew's life had upon the others around him and upon the world, even upon us. Kind of in terms of that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. You guys ever watch that one at Christmas time? George Bailey gets to this crisis situation and he wishes he'd never existed. And it goes through some really bad theology when God and Abraham are like stars or universes talking to each other in the sky, you know. But I think it's interesting because George Bailey has granted his wish. He's he never been born. So he gets to live life for a little while, seeing just how wonderful of a thing it would be if he had never existed. And all of a sudden, he begins to realize... All of the things that he has done in his life. The people that he's impacted and influenced. And the places where he's made a difference. His brother who was a famous war hero. He discovers has died. 
as a boy because George wasn't there to pull him out of the icy cold water when he rescued him. He discovers that the town itself has completely changed because he wasn't there to carry on his father's little crummy old bailiff building and loan business to keep the town from folding under the hands of envious, grumbly potter. Andrew touched many people. I mean, just think, if Andrew had never been born, the New Testament itself might have changed significantly. Peter himself may have never come to follow Jesus. And if that's the case, someone else would have preached the famous Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. We would have to eliminate two books of the New Testament, First and Second Peter. Only heaven knows what would have been left out of the Bible and church history had it not been for Andrew. And I find it interesting that he's one of the very first of all the disciples to be called. In fact, it's in verse 35, before we see Andrew's name mentioned in John chapter 1, that we see this random person, a follower of John the Baptist, standing there with John. And when John says, behold the Lamb of God, Andrew moved his attention from John the Baptist to Jesus and began to follow Jesus. And that day, he stayed with Jesus. His eagerness to follow Christ, combined with his zeal for introducing others to Christ, fairly typifies Andrew's character. I mean, just think, Peter, James, John, and then Andrew. Certainly, Andrew was the least conspicuous. Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about him. He appears in the New Testament only nine times in total. And most references simply mention his name and pass on. Andrew lived his life in the shadows of his better-known brother, Peter. However, least we forget, it was Andrew who introduced Peter to Jesus. Andrew shows that he had the right heart for effective ministry in the background. His name means manly. He was a strong fisherman involved in the family business. His life proved him to be bold, decisive, and deliberate. He was driven by a hearty passion for the truth, and he was willing to subject himself even to the most extreme kinds of hardship. His personal encounter with Jesus took place just a short while after Jesus' baptism. Andrew and John were standing next to John the Baptist when Jesus walked by and uttered those famous words, Behold the Lamb of God. And then he and John became the very first disciples. But first doesn't always mean foremost. And first doesn't necessarily mean one. The news that Andrew had heard was too good to keep to himself. So picture if you had just had an encounter with the living Messiah, Christ, that you and your family and your whole nation had long awaited and expected to come to this earth. Who would you go and find to tell? I would dare say it was the person you were closest to, the person you loved the most. Who did Andrew go and find very first of all? His brother, Peter. He went after him, the person whom he loved most in the world, because he wanted him to know Jesus, and he pointed him to Christ. 
I'm going to share with you three things this morning that I see in Andrew's life. So you can call the sermon, It's a Wonderful Life, if you want to, or you can call it Three Things Andrew Did. The first is this. He saw the value of individual people. Andrew appreciated the value of a single soul. He was known for bringing individuals, not crowds, to Jesus. In fact, when we see him in the New Testament, that's exactly what happens. Every time we see him in the gospel accounts, he's bringing someone to Jesus. And it's really only twice that his name is mentioned with substance. First is here in John chapter 1 when he brought his brother Peter to Jesus. How many people was that that he brought to Jesus? One. The second time we see him is in John chapter 6. I shared with you this miraculous story of the feeding of the 5,000 a couple weeks ago. And it's there as Philip is overwhelmed with the crowd of 5,000 plus people that don't have enough food to eat. That Andrew brings a little boy with five loaves of bread and two fish to Jesus and says, here's what we've got. How many people did Andrew bring to Jesus there? Just one. He saw the value of individual people. Andrew has been referred to as the first home missionary because of the Jewish people that he brought to Jesus. Andrew has also been referred to as the first foreign missionary because of the Greeks he brought to Jesus. Over in John chapter 12, we see his name mentioned one time again, kind of in passing, but with a little bit of substantive story attached. He finds some Greeks, some Gentiles, and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Andrew points them to him. Most people, when we stop and think about it, don't come to Christ as immediate response to a sermon that they've heard in a crowded setting. Most of the time, people come to the Christ because of an influence of an individual in their own lives. Andrew brought one, Peter. And when Peter came to follow Christ, and gave his life to the Lord and allowed the Lord to use him, Peter then brought thousands to Jesus in Acts chapter 2 when he preached his famous sermon. All the fruit of Peter's ministry could also ultimately be the fruit of Andrew's faithful individual witness, could it not? Think about this illustration. Maybe you've heard it before. But few people have heard the name Edward Kimball. Let's just see. Anybody know that name? we got a couple. He was a Sunday school teacher who led a man named D.L. Moody to Christ. Edward went to a Boston shoe store where the 18-year-old Moody was working, cornered in the stockroom, and introduced him to Jesus. Here's how the story goes. Kimball was anything but a bold man. He was a timid, often soft-spoken person. He went to the shoe store frightened, trembling and unaware of whether he had the courage to confront this young man with the gospel. Moody, on the other hand, was crude and obviously illiterate, and Kimball trembled in his boots as he recalled the incident. Moody had begun to attend his Sunday school class, and Moody was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible. Kimball said that he decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul. He goes on to recount the story. I started downtown to Holton's shoe store 
When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. That when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was. And when they learned, they might taunt him, asking him if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over it all, I passed the store without noticing it. Then when I found I had gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. When he came to the store, Kimball found Moody in the stockroom and spoke to him with what he called limping words. Later, he said, I could never remember what I said, something about Christ and his love, and that was all. He admitted himself that it was a weak gospel appeal. But Moody, then and there, gave his life to Christ. How many people did Mr. Kimball go after that day? One. But tens of thousands testified that they came to Christ under D.L. Moody's preaching ministry later on in life. Moody led C.T. Studd, the great pioneer missionary, and William Chapman, who himself became a well-known evangelist to Christ. Moody founded the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago that's trained thousands of people for ministry. It all began when one person was faithful to introduce another to Christ. Andrew and Mr. Kimball saw the value of individual people. I wonder if we do. If we see the value of an individual soul around us. The second thing about Andrew is that he saw the value of insignificant gifts. Remember that story of the 5,000 crowded there from John chapter 6 we looked at a couple weeks ago? I mean, some people see the big picture more clearly just because they appreciate the value of small things. In the feeding of the 5,000 story, Philip's vision was overwhelmed by the size of the need, but Andrew had an altogether different perspective, didn't he? In John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, he says, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Well, but what are they for, for so many? Nevertheless, this gift was placed in Jesus' hands. And we find out that no gift is insignificant in the hands of Jesus, is it? God's ability to use a gift is in no way hindered or enhanced by the size of that gift. It's the sacrificial faithfulness of the giver, not the size of the gift. That's the measure of the gift's significance. It's not the greatness of the gift that counts, but the greatness of the God to whom it is given. There was no better person that day to give just a little bit of food to than Jesus. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 illustrates the way God works. He takes the sacrificial and often seemingly insignificant gifts of people who give faithfully. And he multiplies them to accomplish monumental things. There's a story of a man named Dr. Williams that might be a little more well-known in this part of the world. Anybody know Williams Baptist University now? The founder of that institution. And some of you who are connected, connected to the college or the university now have probably heard this story. But I can't help but think of this story when I think of Dr. Williams. He's a good preacher. 
fact, he had had upon his heart a vision and passion for starting a school to train ministers in the northeast Arkansas area. And as he was going around and, and speaking to churches about the ministry need and the opportunity and trying to get funding to establish this school, there was a woman at one of the churches that he spoke to that came up to him with some money in hand. She was older, obviously didn't have a whole lot to give. But she pulled this money out of her purse. She couldn't see very well. She had been saving this money in an envelope in her purse for eye surgery. And she said, I've listened to you tonight. And you know what I wanted? I, I don't want to get surgery done on, on my eyes. I'd, I'd rather you take this money because you have the vision. And she offered it to him. Dr. Williams being the man he was, I don't know if he took that or not. But nevertheless, I see in that gift, oftentimes, what we think we're bringing to Jesus. Or what we think we can do for Jesus. But really, it's not about what we bring to Jesus. It's the fact that we are bringing to Jesus. And it's not so much what we can do for Jesus, but rather what Jesus can do with us and for us and through us, is it not? I mean, stop and think about it this morning. Is there any reason why people should be gathered together this morning in an auditorium to listen to a 30-year-old person that knows half, maybe, of what you do talk about Jesus? But when Jesus is the Lord of your life, and when you give yourself to Him, He uses you in incredible ways, does He not? Andrew saw the value not only of individual people, but of insignificant gifts. It was a few weeks ago that Jack Wolf, the chairman of our deacons, told the story one day about the boy standing in the offering plate at church. You remember that story? It's because he wanted to give something to Jesus. He wanted to put something in the offering to give to worship God that morning, but he didn't have any money. He decided all he could give was himself. And so he stood there in the offering plate. You might think your life is unimportant or insignificant. But when you bring your life to Jesus and when you bring someone else around you to Jesus. Oh my goodness. What can he not do? Andrew not only saw the value of individual people and insignificant gifts. He also saw the value of inconspicuous service. He saw the value of inconspicuous service. He's the picture of all those who labor quietly in the humble places. Simply going about their day, doing the task for which God has given them the best that they know how to bring Him honor and glory. All because they want to honor the Jesus they follow. In fact, Andrew in many ways epitomizes what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Andrew didn't mind being hidden as long as the work was being done. 
He was a leader with a servant's heart. He never preached to the multitudes or founded any churches. But it was because of his ministry that multitudes were preached to and churches were established. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter, 20, chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, the Apostle Paul wrote something very interesting to that church. It's a group of believers who are always arguing with each other over who had the better spiritual gift or who was more important or who was more significant. And Paul reminded these believers in chapter 1, verses 27 through 29 of 1 Corinthians. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. Those verses in Andrew's life tell me that God is far less impressed with our big, wonderful numbers than we think he is and ought to be. In fact, he is far more pleased and honored when we genuinely care for and minister to and reach the one around us. Tradition has it that Andrew took the gospel into North Russia, possibly Scotland. He was ultimately crucified in Achaia, which is in southern Greece near Athens. And though this is not a scriptural account, I find that it matches the character of Andrew that's displayed and depicted in the New Testament. One account says he led a wife of a providential Roman governor to Christ and that it infuriated her husband. He demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Jesus Christ and she refused because she had found the Messiah. So that governor had Andrew crucified. He was lashed to the cross instead of nailed in order to prolong the suffering. Tradition says it was an X-shaped cross, different than what we have here before us to remind us of the cross on which Jesus died. But in most of the accounts that talk about his death and suffering there on that X-shaped cross say he hung there for two days all the while exhorting passers-by to turn to Christ for salvation. Might I remind you of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, he is the one who will find it, or in some translations, save it. One is a big number. You're one person, and you've only got one life to live. How is your life going to count? Why is it going to matter? If you've only got one life to live, why would you not spend it living it for the one thing worth more than anything else in this world? The thing that is of eternal value 
And that is Jesus Christ Himself. As we've been going through this evangelism campaign, if you want to call it, or an emphasis on who's your one, inviting one person to church, praying for one person to come to Christ, sharing with just one person the story of Jesus and how He can change them and transform them and save them. I know the thoughts we have. I've had them before too. One person... Jake, in a world of almost 8 billion, what difference is that going to make? Jake, in a time and a place as chaotic and evil and wicked as this world is right now, how is that going to change things? But might I remind you, the power of one man, one person. When God wanted to save the world from sin, He didn't send the angels of heaven to come and stomp out evil. He didn't rally all of the Old Testament prophets and the lawmakers and the elders and say, guys, we're going to have to go out and create a huge political tidal wave to take over. He sent His one and only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe this morning today, you're the one, you're the Andrew, who needs to bring a brother to Jesus Christ, who needs to point a father or a sister or a co-worker or a teammate towards Jesus. Maybe this morning, you're the one. You're the Peter. Somebody's brought you to church or asked you to come to church or somebody's been on your tail talking to you about Jesus and you're here this morning and I just share with you that Jesus Christ came for you he came for the world he gave his life up on the cross for your sins he was buried in a tomb but three days later he rose again his death promises forgiveness and his resurrection promises eternal life And if all you'll do is believe that Jesus gave himself up for you on the cross and that he rose again, and you'll give your old life to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior, he'll save you from your sins and he'll give you a new life, eternal life and abundant life. Maybe that's you this morning. And maybe during the song of invitation, you just need to come forward and say, Jake, that's me. Even if nobody else here will say it today, I know I'm the lost sheep. I'm the one who's gone astray. Jake, I need Jesus to save me. I want Him to be the Lord of my life. As Nick plays through this song, would you stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And then I'm going to ask you to respond as God has spoken to your heart. Maybe you need to come to this altar and pray for one person in your life to come to know Jesus. Maybe you yourself are one person who needs to know Jesus this morning. I'll be standing down here in the front if you need to speak with me. The altar's open.